the reality is that approximately one out of every two young adults will drift from God after high school. So just in really practical terms, though we both pray for Hannah and Miranda, it means one of them will pull away from God or drift away from God, and one of them won't. And I think this happens in a time that's one of the most intense transitions of their lives, and for their parents, it's after one of the most intensive parenting times in their lives. But it's not just a parent issue. Nearly three-quarters of the students in the College Transition Project Research Group out of the Fuller Youth Institute reported that these youth group graduates had doubts during high school about what they believed about God and about faith in Christ, and just as many of them felt like they wanted to talk about those doubts with someone else, but only two or three out of every ten actually had conversations about those doubts. Actually, with anyone, with those youth leaders, with their parents, even with the peers from the same church. See, the reality is we don't often talk about our doubts. But it's not just a parenting issue. It's not just a young person issue either. Because I hear questions very similar from very different kinds of people. Questions like, does God exist? Or does God love me? Or is Christianity really true? Is it really the only way to God? Why does science seem like facts, but faith seems like fiction? And why is it sometimes hard to believe in God? So in other words, young adults are not the only ones that are having these questions that are sitting silently in them. The rest of us are really struggling with that as well. So the goal of this series that we're calling I Want to Believe is to make space to talk about not only our faith, but also the ways in which we struggle in our faith, the obstacles that come out in our believing. And we'll look at... uh, probably four different aspects of faith, and today we'll look at faith and doubt. Uh, Next week, we'll look at faith and truth, and how do we believe in a time and a place? How do we believe in Jesus exclusively when believing in one thing exclusively is looked so frowned upon in our world? The next week, we'll look at faith and hypocrisy and how We live in this world and we want to believe in this God who is love, who hates sin, but we see people who say they love God, but also seem to love their sin. And then the last week, we'll look at faith and things, where we'll look at the challenges to believing in a time and a place when we can have pretty much anything we want. There might be a bonus week after that, if you know, depending on where we're at. But that's where we're going in the next month, and so we invite you to Join us for each week. We invite you to bring friends to that each week because we think that it'll be practical, helpful, and relevant to our lives. Um, But today I want to start with this idea of what actually belief is. When we say we have faith, what does that actually mean? And so it's it's not a rocket science definition. I think we'll even put it up on the screen. To believe or to have faith means that we trust 
It's much more a verb than it is an object or a noun. If I believe in something, it's not as much I'm agreeing with a set of statements that I think are true. It's actually more about what my response is because I think something's true. That's what it means to have faith, to trust. And so today, we're going to look at faith and doubt. And some people think that doubt's evil or it's wrong to doubt. But doubt does not repel God. In fact, doubt can be normal and even healthy at times. For example, if you get a phone call and someone is going to offer you uh, a ridiculous thing at an insignificant amount of money, and all it's going to cost you is your social security number, your mother's maiden name, and the name of your first childhood pet, you should doubt, okay? It's not going to be good. But doubt, we'll see today, can actually be a doorway to a greater faith if we know what to do with it. So if you have a Bible, uh, John chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible and you have one of those smartphones, I recommend the uh, YouVersion Bible app. That's a really easy way to tap, tap, tap and find the verses that we're going to look at. We're going to look at a story that might be familiar to some of you and actually has a few different titles. It's this guy named Thomas, and oftentimes he's called Doubting Thomas because of this event. But this story in the context of John chapter 20, Jesus has died. Jesus has risen from the grave. Jesus has been seen by some women. Jesus had two of his disciples, Peter and John, run to the tomb. And one of them walks away wondering what happened. The other one walks away. And somehow, even though he hasn't seen, he believes what happened actually happened. And so the evening of the first day of the week is how this will start. And that is that night, the night after the first resurrection. Well, really, only resurrection at this point, but the first Easter. So John chapter 20, I'm starting in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father is sending me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit and said, receive the Spirit. For if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also called Didymus, or the twin, was one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I want to pause there because... I think a lot of people, and certainly a lot of pastors, have beat up on Thomas. But actually, if we look at the stories that make up Thomas, at least that were given in Scripture, we'll see that, that this doesn't contradict, doesn't put a man in, in this life of doubt. It actually puts someone whose life and, and faith was about trying to believe what he thought, despite what he felt. So, I think he would also say what most of us 
would say. Unless I have definitive evidence for something, I'm not going to believe it. And, and so I think there's two ways in which most of us doubt. And we'll just want to spend a couple minutes on each of these two different ways that most of us doubt before we see what we need to do with our doubt. Because the first one is intellectual doubt. Like, I was a math major, not as smart as Dawson with his <laughs> double majors, but uh, as someone who is a math major in college, I believe that one plus one equals two. I actually also believe that one times one equals one because I can, or at least I used to be able to, logically prove it. I could do not only the, f- the proofs for those addition and, su- and multiplication, but actually why addition and multiplication are true. It was crazy. I was, anyway, can't do it now. But that's, into, that's an example of intellectual doubt. And Thomas has been this guy who is saying, I want to believe what I can think regardless of what I feel. The first episode where we see Thomas is in John 11, and this is at a point where it's evident to everyone else that, Thomas's, or that Jesus's life is in danger. And Jesus is saying, I'm going back near Jerusalem. And the disciples are saying, you can't go. And Thomas is the only one who puts into words what they were feeling. He says, you know what? Let's go and die with Jesus. And we don't know exactly how he said it. It might have been sarcastic. However, it also could have been very loyal and brave. Well, let's go and die with Jesus. If that's what he's got to do, then that's what we're going to do. I'm going to choose to believe what I think, what the facts are, what the evidence says, regardless of what I feel. It's quite a courageous statement. He didn't hesitate to follow Jesus. So what I want us to do, even if it's hard, even if you decide to disagree with me later, is for a couple minutes, just instead of looking at Thomas as a whiner or someone who's weak or someone who's a doubter, look at him as someone who would be called maybe a smart skeptic. Because John 20 tells us that Thomas was not with the disciples and we don't know why. It It doesn't tell us why he wasn't there. It just says he wasn't there. And when the other disciples, the other 10 and the women, would have seen the Lord and would have told Thomas that they had seen the Lord... They can't convince him. These would have been people that had, would have become friends with him because he'd spent the last two or three years following Jesus with them, and their testimony was not enough for him to believe because it didn't fit with what he knew. That sure, Jesus raised from the dead just appears in a locked room. I mean, you guys must be smoking something because I can't see it unless I see the evidence. I think there are times where when we look at the evidence of faith, it may not make logical sense to us or intellectual sense to us. And this should be a place where that's okay, where we're not afraid if someone says that. And we won't judge them and we won't shame them because God is, if God is all truth, then people should be able to bring their doubts and engage God with it. He's not offended by it. In fact, if we can do this, I believe that we will start to understand what a great opportunity 
doubt can be. For example, the um, Case for Christ came out less than two months ago, and as of Friday, it was still in theaters. The Case for Christ is a book, or it was a book, based. the movie was based on a book, which was based on the life of this guy named Lee Strobel. And rather than tell you about Lee Strobel, I, I want us to watch this little brief interview that he gave about the book and the upcoming movie. So I think it's going to work. Well, for most of my life, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe, I thought it was stupid. I mean, my background's in journalism and law. I tended to be a skeptical person. I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So I needed evidence before I believe anything. One day, my wife came up to me. She had been agnostic. And she said after a period of spiritual investigation, she had decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, you know, this is the worst possible news I could get. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude who's going to spend all of her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. But in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome, and it was attractive, and it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day, uh, mainly to try to see if I could get her out of this cult that she's gotten involved in. But I heard the message of Jesus articulated for the first time in a way that I could understand it. That forgiveness is a free gift and that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that we might spend eternity with him. And I walked out saying, I was still an atheist, but also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. And so I used my journalism training and legal training to begin an investigation into whether there's any credibility to Christianity or to any other world faith system for that matter. I did that for a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1981. And on that day, I realized that in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and as my leader. And just like with my wife, my life began to change over time. My values, my character, the purpose of my life began to be transformed over time in a way that, as I look back, I can't imagine staying on the path I was on compared to the adventure and the fulfillment and the joy of following Jesus Christ. If you haven't read A Case for Christ, it's an excellent resource that kind of tackles intellectual doubt. Another one would be uh, A Reason for God in an Age of Skepticism by Tim Keller. And if you're looking for something that's a little briefer than either of those, uh, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell is a great short book that looks at the historical reliability of the Bible, but also the evidence internally and externally on the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each one in and of themselves are a great resource if this is something that you or someone you care about is struggling with. And I think the thing that I've come to understand as I've grown in my faith, because I definitely, this was part of my story. This intellectual doubt was part of my early adult life and my late teen life. And it wasn't actually until some smart people that I met came around me, and they listened to my questions, my challenges, calmly, 
non-anxiously, and then responded with intelligent questions of their own that caused me to investigate, that I started to realize that faith wasn't just this blind thing that people did, that there was actually intelligent um, evidence and reason that backed it, that like Lee Strobel said, that it would take more faith for me not to believe. And so if you haven't investigated this or you have someone that is um, maybe I'll say smarter than you, and you're very intimidated by the questions they might say, then I encourage you to check out these books and investigate for yourself. And then don't do that alone, but have other people come alongside you. Share where you're at with it. And it can be intellectually engaging, and we can satisfy those parts of us, but there's this other piece that at least is common for it seems like more people these days, and definitely common to me in the second half of this part of my life, and that's experiential doubt. Experiential doubt might be like, I believe in the seasons of spring, summer, fall, and winter because I've personally experienced them, and my experience supports what I believe. Experiential doubt, then, is when we experience something that seems inconsistent with what we thought we believed. For example, experiential doubt is like a woman who recently told me, uh, for so long I could not trust God as a good and loving father because of my horrendous experience with my own father. Or for me, when I watch, read, or listen to the news and see so much evil and so much death and so much destruction, I go, oh, God, why? If you are this powerful, why do we have to endure so much? And if this is where um, you face doubts, uh, a couple great resources um, are Letters from a Skeptic by Dr. Greg Boyd, It's written as a back-and-forth correspondence between a son who believes and a father who doesn't. Another one is Mere Christianity. This is a classic book. It took me seven tries to read it because it's a little deep. But um, in it, C.S. Lewis talks about the possibility of a good and loving God that also allows human suffering. And though it might be a little controversial, I think The Shack is a book and a movie now about a a, a man who's a dad who is struggling to believe in a God who could be a good heavenly father when he has lost tragically his own child. But each of these engages not only this little intellectual piece, but also our emotions and our experience, which make up who we are. And so these are also books that if you've read them, you should keep them for a time when someone you know is experiencing that kind of doubt and share those. Some of the reason I keep these on my shelves, even after I've read them once or twice, or in a couple cases three times, is so that I can loan those out to people that need them. The question really isn't, though, what kind of doubt we have, because we all have doubt. The question is really more important. What are you doing with your doubt. In, um, in a book called The Grand Paradox, The mystery, the Messiness of Life, The Mystery of God, and The Necessity of Faith, writer Ken Wurtzma says that when you're in the desert and dying of thirst, 
falling over on the ground will not lead you to water. Or if you are drowning in the ocean, becoming motionless will not save you. At least it won't get you back to shore. And when you're doubting in your belief on Christ, why do people think that bringing their faith to a halt will bring them answers? We get hung up in our doubt, and we refuse to move forward until we have answers. And sometimes we inadvertently or even deliberately create distance between us and God. It's almost like this progression says, well, I'm really struggling in my doubt and in my faith, so I need a break from church. But that often means a break from prayer, a break from the Bible, a break from our Christian community, maybe even a break from our moral code, he says. And when we do that, we miss the faith-building opportunity that doubt is. We become stuck in our doubt. We become distant in our doubt. And that's when our faith can be diminished, if that's what we do with our doubt. But if we, if we see what, what healthy ways to engage our doubt, we'll see what the, oppor- the, the opportunity that doubt is. So what should we do with it? Well, throughout the Bible... God never challenges whether doubt exists. He seems completely willing to accept our doubt, our faith, our trust, our belief. In fact, doubt is the first sin, if you will, that appears in the Bible. So often that's where we think it's bad. It's in Genesis. It's in chapter 3. Everything is good, and yet there's this serpent that's introduced that's crafty. That's all we're given. It's crafty. It's like this scheming monster in the garden of goodness. And all that serpent says is, did God really say? Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So Eve is the first person who encounters doubt. What does Eve do with her doubt? This can be a game. We can go back and forth for a minute. What does Eve do with her doubt? According to those verses. She defends herself by doing what? Tells who? She talks to the serpent about her doubt, doesn't she? That's what she does with it. And it doesn't turn out so good, does it? When we bring our doubts to Satan, when we bring our doubts to the serpent that introduces doubt, it often leads to despair. Not the healthiest way to greater faith. Now, there's another person early in the Bible, Moses. He brings his doubt somewhere. He is doubting that he's the person that God should choose to lead the people out of Egypt. It's in Exodus chapter 3. We'll also put that on the screen. We'll see, look, the cry of Israel, this is God talking, has reached me and I see how harshly the Egyptians abuse my people. Now go, I'm sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh. You must lead the people out of Egypt. So what does Moses do with his doubt? This can also be. He talks to God about it. So where would Moses be bringing his doubt? the answer you're thinking is probably right. To God. That's a great place to bring your doubt. In fact, Moses brings it again and again and again. It takes up two chapters 
Exodus 3 and 4, where he goes back and forth with God in all of this doubt. Verse 13 says it again, 4.1. Finally, he just says, God, send someone else. Why would that be in the Bible if this wasn't an example, either poor or good, of how we are supposed to interact? I would say it's a positive example because of what happens in the end. Moses does go and does lead the people and completely relies on God for it. It ends up being a very, very good thing. If you're ever wondering if doubt is something good or acceptable in our lives, you could read the Psalms. You'll see all kinds of doubt filled in there. So doubt can be this doorway to greater faith if we know where to bring it, if we know what to do with it. And I would say that's to bring it to Jesus. That's what Moses, does. Moses brings it to God. In John chapter 14, Thomas has another example of when Jesus is preparing the disciples for his crucifixion and departure. And Jesus is talking about going and preparing a place for them. And he says, you know, once I go, then I'll, I'll come back. I will come back and take you to the place that I may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says what probably everyone else is thinking. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Again, we don't know the intonation, the inflection, and the attitude with which Thomas said it, but if he's trying to, again, what's consistent in his life is, I'm trying to be faithful to what I know and what I think despite what I feel. I'm trying to have this smart skepticism, and what I understand is, I don't know the way. I don't know where it is, so how can I know the way? And he brings his doubt to Jesus. He brings it openly and unashamedly. Friends, can we be a place where we can openly and unashamedly bring our doubts to Jesus? Now, the, second, the last time Thomas talks about this is in John 20, where we started. He doesn't think he can bring his doubt to Jesus because he doesn't think Jesus is around anymore. So he does the next best thing. He brings it to Jesus' church. Doubt is a doorway to greater faith if you know where to bring it. If you bring it to Jesus and you bring it to his church. Can we be a place where you can openly and unashamedly bring your doubt? Again, it's not inherently bad. In John chapter 20, Thomas isn't there the first time. A week later, in verse 26... The disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was there with them. I want you to consider the power of that statement. Thomas has said a week before, unless I see the marks in his hands and put my finger there, unless I see the, this slice in his side and put my hand in, I will not believe. And his Christian community accepted that. They held that. They weren't embarrassed by it. They weren't threatened by it. They invited him to continue to stick around, even though he may not have been participating very strongly, enthusiastically, or wholeheartedly. 
That's, friends, what it means to be a community, and I would say to be an accepting community. That's why when we started Restoration, one of our core values we said was, we've got to be an accepting community. It doesn't mean we accept anything we want. It just means that we know that we can't do life on our own, that we need other people's, that we accept the reality of community, number one, and then we create a space where truth and grace and love and non-threatening presence can be available, can be part of what we do. And we're not going to judge where you're coming from or think we're better if we have this particular trust and you don't. That's what restoration small groups are all about, to be relational and missional, to be in a place where we can wrestle with our doubts and our faith and learn to grow in them A lot of our small groups take a break in the summer, so we also do just some one-time events. Specifically, we do these things called fellowship dinners, which are just a place for you to bring yourself and some food and more organically and naturally get to know some people and, and then be done after an hour and a half or two hours of food and conversation. And then you might walk away from that and say, oh, I'd really like to get to know so and so more. Oh, I seem to really connect with them. I had no idea that they liked this or that we liked the same things. And this is how relationships develop. This is where we develop the trust with which we can offer our doubts to each other. And that's when we see the doorway to a greater faith. See, this episode ends with Jesus again coming and standing among them and saying, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas, and he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Lord, help me to believe even in my unbelief. Doubt does not have to be in competition with our faith. Doubt can actually be this helpful thing that gives us greater faith if we can bring our doubts to Jesus and his church. And, and Thomas so clearly has a greater faith at this point. He says, my Lord and my God, making profound statements of what and who Jesus is. As a symbol of us being a place where doubt can be a doorway to greater faith. There's a, a note card in your folder. As we close today, I invite you to write a question or doubt that you have. If you don't want anyone else to see it and you're a little embarrassed by it, you can put it up upside down. Just the act of walking this up will speak volumes to God and actually your own spirit. If you want someone to respond to you privately about it, put your name on it. Again, face up or face down, doesn't matter. What this will also do is it will communicate to us, hey, These are things that either we struggle with or we have questions about or we might want to talk about in the future, either in small groups or where we serve. And so this can be a doorway for us to develop greater faith as well. I mean, the writer of John ends his story by saying, Thomas believed because he saw, but blessed are those who believe because they don't see doesn't mean they don't have an unintelligent faith. It means they are able to put their trust in a God who presents evidence that may look different than the physical evidence that we think we need. 
So would you take that card as the worship band comes up and we close in prayer and, and put that up. You can tack it up, gently use the board. It's not a very strong easel. But again, I think this will encourage us to see doubt as a doorway to greater faith when we bring that doubt to Jesus and his church. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that you put episodes in the Bible where people mess up, (laughs) that you put episodes in the Bible where people don't always get it right, but they honestly state where they're struggling. God, that authenticity just brings so much hope to me, and I think it brings so much realness to the Bible, so much added, added support of the fact that it's true. God, would you create us into a people God, that can receive others' doubts without judgment, without shame, without embarrassment. Can we be people that bring those doubts so openly to you without fear of what others might think or say or do? And may we trust that you're a God who can handle it and that you will work it out with us in in the timing that you think is perfect. Thank you, God, for who Jesus is, the fact that he can walk through walls and appear in rooms and hand evidence over to us in such loving ways. Thank you for a a time and an age where we live with resources online, in books, in media, God, where we can learn who you are and what you've done in in a more tangible way. God, but help us to see each other as resources. That God, in your church, we have what we need. And that you are still God, even when we don't think we have what we need. God, we give this time and our lives to you. That you would take where we're at, even in our unbelief, and help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.